Hi, and welcome to BETA's monthly podcast series, How We Listen Live in Conversation. I'm Mark Brown, the founder of BETA.com, the platform enabling the sending and receiving of digital audio in a clean, simple, and secure way. Built for everyone working with music today. BETA's goal is to provide artists and their teams with the tools and the knowledge to help move their careers forward. Anyone interested in working in and around the music ecosystem should have access to as many insights into the business of music as possible. We think that the best approach is to do as much as you can on your own before you start building your team. And this podcast series will help. We present our How We Listen Live in Conversation events in two parts. In the first, I offer up some of my experience in the music industry and highlight what's happening at Beta. The second part is an in-depth one-on-one conversation with someone from deep within the music ecosystem. Each guest talks about how they've made their way to where they are today, while offering tips and tricks they picked up along the way. You are about to hear the one-on-one conversation. Tune in live online on the last Tuesday of every month to hear the whole event. Sign up is free. Our guest today is Jason Grishoff, founder of Submit Hub. His goal is to transparently connect artists with curators, getting your music heard efficiently by the right people. His path includes the early days of music blogging and sharing digital audio files. We had a lot to talk about. Kevin spoke to us from South Africa. Here's our conversation. I guess I should call Jason was busy doing something. You're back. All right, good. Refill ah, my beer. Let's do this. I, I think this is the first time we've actually had a guest who is having a beer. It's or at least had it in the air. So, you know, like where are you again? All the way down in Cape Town, South Africa. And our time here is 7:15. So for me to have a beer is completely acceptable. No, it's, well, it's great. I guess maybe I end up talking to people mostly in North America and the UK who are behind me. So to start, tell us what you do these days, exactly. Uh, I run two websites in the music space. The first one is a music blog called Indie Shuffle. I started that back in 2007. And the second one is a much bigger website called Submit Hub, which I started in 2015 as sort of an offshoot from Indie Shuffle to try and solve a problem that I was having with my music blog. So today I spend most of my time running the businesses, doing customer support, but I'm also the only coder and technical guy. So if you've ever been to, to Indie Shuffle or Submit Hub, like all that code is built by these fingers. So kind of fun. I, I was actually, I, I, I was on Indie Shuffle today. It was pretty cool. And I noticed the design is totally similar. Like it was fascinating. I, it felt very familiar being there after being on Submit Hub. So like, but, but let's, can we go back to what were you, how did you start in the shuffle? What were you doing around before then? Or Yeah, so 2007, if you can rewind that far, Spotify didn't exist, SoundCloud didn't exist, YouTube music didn't exist. What existed? Or, what, what existed? Napster. Like, oh. The, the, the illegal Napster or the legal? Oink. All of these were illegal. So uh, yeah, the one I was actually part of, which which really got me going was called Oink. Yeah, MySpace was there as well. Um, yeah. <laughs> Oink and what.cd. So these were two 
private BitTorrent sites that I managed to stumble my way into. And next thing I knew, I was just downloading fistfuls of, of, of music. So I, I started by, by getting all the old catalogs, Led Zeppelin, The Beatles, Pink Floyd. I was diving headfirst into these. But what was really cool about these, these more private torrenting sites, and, and by private, I think they had about 50,000 members. So it was still big, wow. but you had to get an invite. And they had these charts. So they had a, a top 10 most popular torrents, but then they also had a top 10 most popular new releases. And that was really cool for finding indie acts that were new on the scene, but creating great music. So I remember bumping into a lot of, uh, well, I'll throw out band names, but who knows if you'll know them, but like Two Door Cinema Club, Friendly Fires, Phoenix, all these guys were releasing albums around 2007 and they were hitting the top of these charts. And so I suddenly just had this explosion of discovery. And at the same time, I had moved across America from San Diego to Washington, D.C. for work. And so I found myself stuck in D.C. It was approaching winter. It was dark. It was miserable. I'd left all my friends back behind at university and I needed a way to connect with them. So I combined those two things, that sort of depression of being in the darkness and losing all my friends with this new music discovery. And, and I began a weekly email digest. So once a week, I would send out a summary of the albums I had discovered on these torrent sites. And pretty quickly, someone came back and said, hey, that's cool, but can you just put it on a website and maybe like some way for me to listen, the MP3 or something? And I thought, okay, sure. Yeah, you're right. That's that's more permanent, right? You know, I'm putting all this love into these emails. Let me try to throw it up on a website. So I went to like wordpress.com and I registered and started fiddling around. And, and before I knew it, you know, here you go. Here's, here's the, you know, five albums I found this week. And it's a link to my, my blog. And on this blog, I've got, you know, embedded MP3s. And so that started to catch on and, and it grew from my friends to suddenly I was getting just traffic on the internet from Google from other places. And so I started to go, okay, this is pretty cool. Does anyone else do this? And I stumbled upon a forum called Elbows. And El this was- El Elbows is in- Yeah, like your elbow. Huh. So, yeah. so what Elbows did huh. was they kept track of all the music blogs on the internet. Uh, and they aggregated that into a website that kept track of, of who was, growing and who was blowing up that type of thing and they also had a forum on the side and it ended up that there were a bunch of like-minded people also trying to run their music blogs in these forums and so we started to share tricks and i was reading all these things about how people were growing their traffic and getting all these visitors and putting ads on their website and it just became a bit of an obsession for me this this thing that started with this you know discovering music suddenly i was a web developer I was like building websites and trying to grow that and get the ads and share this music and you wanted to be the first to discover the next big act because that's what got you all the credibility and the traffic and oh, it was an obsession um and before i knew it i think within the first year i was averaging about a hundred thousand visits a month on my website which was which was great and um, and but but for context though because i i think this is super important like back then how was music being, how were people finding out about music? Like it was basically, they were still reading magazines, right? So, Excellent question. Yeah, yeah. So there was the torrent thing happening, right? Yeah. And, and then there were also MP3 blogs and those were really taking off as well. So these were these were a lot like torrent blogs and, and Indie Shuffle started as an MP3 blog. 
So when we covered content, it wasn't like we were putting a YouTube embed in there because that wasn't really a thing. And we certainly yeah. weren't putting SoundCloud in there. We were putting up MP3s. And so for and, the and first so this is shows, the, but, but the whole point is, is that before that, people were reading reviews and then thinking about if they wanted to buy it. And this was yeah. the transfer over to the idea that here are some words about this artist, but you can actually listen to it in real time and decide it. Totally. Yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. So, I mean, okay. prior to this, music discovery would have been uh, through radio, through word of mouth, through live performances. And you definitely had those people back in high school who would make mixtapes and pass that type of stuff out. So in my mind, music bloggers were basically the same people. They were the ones who loved making mixtapes and, and they got a kick out of that sort of confirmation that I'm doing something cool and people think I'm cool because I'm finding music. So I found myself in a similar camp where here I am giving all these tips and people are loving it. And I'm like, yes, you know, that was the positive affirmation I was looking for as I went through that. So uh, interestingly, we it didn't go unnoticed because these MP3 blogs kept growing and growing and growing. And next thing you know, we had all the labels knocking on our door saying, that they were going to take us to court for putting mp3s on our website and you had to take it down so there was a big business in this uh content policing that went on in the early days of blogging and that web sheriff birth. was it called web sheriff exactly was it web sheriff yep i used to get takedown <laughs> notices all the time and then you'd go yeah what mp3 yeah. And you sort of just delete it from the server and they couldn't it's like you yeah. can't prove anything but this is where soundcloud actually came to the rescue and really took off I think a lot of their success was that they offered us bloggers who, who back in 2008, 2009, 2010, we were the peak of music discovery. We were it. We were getting millions of millions. Like we could blow people up collectively. And SoundCloud came along and offered us a safe way to host all of that music for free. Yeah. And it also gave artists a safe and centralized way to distribute all of that music for free. So this is really where SoundCloud blew up. And they did this in 2009, 2010. And it was it was a godsend for us as music bloggers. And and so yeah, that that kind of from there things really took off. And and the the peak of music blogging definitely lasted from about 2010 till 2014, 2015. And so, you know, you're getting all these takedown notices from someone at some label, but then the, at the same time, the press department in the same building is sending you an email saying, hey love what you do can you promote our new record is that not the yep. case yeah yeah and those emails <laughs> were really cool to get at first uh, i didn't i didn't know that was a thing i didn't know anything about the music industry i didn't know that there were publicists trying to push stuff i was clueless and so getting some of these emails at the start was really cool especially when it was from artists that i recognized uh, and so that that was an aspect of, of blogging that a lot of us who got into it didn't anticipate and then we thought it was cool but it ended up spawning an entire business uh, uh, of publicists everyone was suddenly a publicist because the whole strategy was how do you reach these music blogs who's got the best list who's got the best connections and that actually uh, is a good segue into why submit hub exists but we can we can get there when you're ready yeah no, well, let, well, let's talk about Submit Hub a bit, and then we're going to come back to all the publicist stuff, I think, is sure, a good yeah. idea. So tell, tell me a bit more about Submit Hub. Well, so, so with Indie Shuffle, as we grew in popularity, our inbox became busier and busier. And what would happen as an artist is that once you jumped online and you tried to figure out how to promote yourself, one of the first things you would encounter was someone telling you, 
that you got to push your music to blogs. And for $20, I'll give you a spreadsheet with 1,000 email addresses in it. And uh, then you're done. So what they would do is, you know, you get your spreadsheet, you select all, you paste it into your email. Boom, you contact 1,000 blogs in one email. It was completely untargeted. Everything was in disjointed formats. So some would have an MP3 attached. Others would have a link to YouTube. Others would be on Spotify, whatever. Um, but what it meant was by the time... 2013 rolled around we were getting in excess of 300 email pitches per day and the vast majority of them were completely untargeted and so what i did was i set up an email address submissions at indieshuffle.com and then i automatically deleted all the emails that went to it and that was it and i wasn't alone a lot of other music bloggers did this too it was completely overwhelming and it sort of sucked the joy out of out of music discovery and um you deleted them all so like you didn't even take a little listen little look see not you just set up an auto delete. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I wasn't alone. I mean, how poor, are you going to poor PR people? Oh, spit a moment of who... silence for the PR people. A moment of silence for the PR people. Well, so the good PR people <laughs> were, Ooh, yeah. were far more effective at contact. Okay, me. So they would contact me directly, and they'd say, "Hey, I saw on Twitter that you're going to be in London this week. Can I take you out for some beers? And we're going to go see a private showing of so and so." And so they were okay. really good at those types of yeah. things. Okay. So this is where the publicists really had an advantage. And if you were an artist, really, by the time 2013, 2014 rolled around, the only way you could get your music pitched to and heard by any of these music blogs was to hire a publicist. It was next to impossible to get any of us to actually stop, open up our inbox and pay attention to what you're doing. And if you look at some of the bigger music blogs that still are attempting to exist today, so like Pitchfork, Stereo Gum, Enemy, they don't really have much influence or clout anymore, but they're still impossible to contact. And, and that's very intentional. <laughs> and, and they've just got their connections that they're working through. So yeah. the downside there is that, that as music bloggers, we actually stopped discovering new music and we all started publishing the same stuff. We were regurgitating songs by artists we already knew. So here's a new song by Lana Del Rey or a new song by Kid Cudi, or, or as I mentioned before, Tudor Cinema Club. And so what the advantage was for these artists is that they were able to amplify themselves a lot easier. They had already been covered three or four years ago. A new release comes out. Everyone covers it because we already know who they are. Uh, and so, so there was a bit of a, uh, a, not a hive mind, but like we, we were all pretty cohesive in, in what we were covering. And that sucked for independent artists. But it did mean that those bigger artists could actually make a living, become big, get booked to play Bonnaroo, Coachella, Glastonbury, whatever, and actually make a living out of it. So things have changed a lot since then. And for those artists who were able to ride that wave, I think that was sort of the heyday of awesomeness. And I think you'll actually find many of those artists are, are now kind of struggling to regain that former glory. But but that that is also that period is the is the last time that there was such a I I think that era was the last time that there was such a focus like you're saying where yeah. everybody was the, the media was swimming in the same direction and yep. I think that's what's interesting about like what you were when you started building Submit Hub was the fact that that's when it really started to change that anybody could release music anybody could try to promote it themselves but it was nigh on impossible to get noticed. And that's when this, the hive mind sort of mm -hmm. disintegrated. Yeah, look, it's, uh, I, I don't want to say that we 
were single-handedly responsible for it in any way, but I think it was just the perfect storm of, of, of the space shifting, right? You had multiple different streaming services, Spotify, yeah. Apple Music, all these guys competing for market share. You had this sort of democratization of music where anyone could access music very easily anywhere. You didn't have to know what an MP3 blog was or how to torrent something or do anything like that. Um, and, and what happened with Submit Hub is that, that people actually, these curators started paying attention to all the music they were getting sent and what that meant is everyone sort of went off in their own little direction covering different stuff and that that cohesion got lost. So I absolutely agree with you that the blogging era was the last time I think that that existed and people are still looking for that. So three years ago, everyone was raving about the, the power that TikTok would have to make artists and, and people were gravitating towards that. But I think in, in this vein, TikTok hasn't actually done that. It's just added even more noise to the to the space now. And yeah. So then, but then, so explain the, the, the Submit Hub and what your goal was there from the, the Indie Shuffle perspective. So you're getting all these emails. You're like, I'm paying attention. I'm not paying attention. It's chaos. Did you just think I need to do something about this to make it well, easier for, because I think a yeah. lot of people don't realize how intense it is. <laughs> when you're when you're running like a website or doing a radio show and people are hitting you with all this information so i think that's important I, to talk about i gotta be honest it wasn't that intense because i was automatically deleting all the well, content yeah. i was said but i i felt like it was a wasted opportunity and and there were often times where i got online to find content to blog and found that i was coming up empty-handed so i wasn't discovering music in the same way at the same time, the entire internet industry was taking a shift. So what had happened with, with blogging in general was that print magazine had shifted their advertising model to blogging and you would pay based on circulation. So $5 for a thousand eyeballs type of thing. And what that meant that as a music blog doing 6 million views a month, we were bringing in quite a good amount of money. I think we were making about $15,000 a month which was great for someone in their 20s. I was pretty stoked and I was able to run a business. So I was paying my writers. I was bringing in developers from outside. 2014, 2015 saw a pretty major shift in that. A lot of advertisers realized that eyeballs don't equal conversions. And yeah. along comes Facebook and Google saying, hey, but we'll only charge you if it converts. So you're not going to pay for eyeballs. You're actually going to pay for clicks and conversions and you can actually track what gets converted and do much better targeting. And so throughout the internet, not just in the music space, there was a sudden and rapid shift in the way that advertising worked, which means that independent blogs started to lose their revenue stream. At the same time, you had Spotify launching in the States in 2013. You had Apple Music coming shortly after that. And what that meant was that music blogs were no longer the place that people were going to find and listen to music. You also had YouTube changing the way that search worked. So instead of you search for a song, a blog comes up at the top. Now what you get is a giant YouTube preview and they really take up all the real estate on your screen with that preview. So it was this perfect storm of seeing advertising dip and traffic dip all at the same time. And what that meant in 2015 was that we were all just getting bombarded with emails more than we'd ever received at this point because the cat was out of the bag and that was the strategy, just email all the blogs and we weren't making any money. So I had to either go back to my day job, which I had quit in 2013, or I had to try to come up with a different model or a different way to, to, to make a living. 
So Submit Hub's birth came from the idea that I needed to solve that problem of the 300 emails a day, but also out of a necessity of having to pivot and seeing the sort of the writing on the wall that music blogging wasn't going to be a way that people could actually earn a living anymore. So th those were the sort of confounding factors that brought it all together. Because I, I think like another thing that's interesting with this is like the, the, the wild west of blogging it was easy to make some money and then everybody starts doing it and it becomes hard to make money just in the same way that with Facebook early on, it was easy to get reach on your posts until everybody started getting reach on their posts and then it changed. And I think that's also what, what's good for artists and managers and people who work in music to think about. It's like, how, what is it like for these people I'm getting in touch with? Because I think if, if you're under pressure, you can't deliver support for other people if there's no money in it. and i think so oh that is okay so that that's super interesting i didn't even think of that with the that there was no money so so what did you think that if if you built a system for people to submit music in a more regimented way and then people pay for that service it ultimately increases the value of both sides well okay so so First thing I had to solve was the inconsistency of the emails that were coming through. So yeah. the initial version of Submit Hub was a simple artist name, song title, and here's a link. And then I used the code that I had learned over the years building Indie Shuffle to synthesize that into a feed that looks a lot like your SoundCloud feed. So everything I was getting was consistent. And alongside each song, I put a thumb up button, which meant yeah. I'm going to blog it. And if I hit that, you would get an email saying, Jason from Indie Shuffle likes your song. He's going to blog it. There would also be a thumb down email and that would say, sorry, Jason from Mindy Shuffle doesn't like your song enough to cover it. And I hadn't really thought too much about the monetization model and, and nothing like it really existed at the time. So uh, as with many things on Submit Hub, they were born from the feedback that I received from artists themselves. And with these thumb down emails, eventually the question started bubbling up of, of why. And I thought, okay, well, feedback if you, if you give me a dollar i'll tell you why and to my surprise everyone was like yeah yeah, yeah totally here's a dollar tell me so so the the idea of submit hubs premium credits was born within a month of submit hubs existence and it's still the same today so using a premium credit gets you three things you get a response within 48 hours you get a minimum listen time of 20 seconds and you get at least 10 words of feedback if the song is not a fit. And those three rules still exist today. They haven't changed at all. So that, that was the, the sort of idea behind this. And what that also meant was that blogs who had a, a, a dwindling, it solved a few problems, right? So some blogs had dwindling revenue and this provided a new revenue stream. It also solved the problem that they had too many emails to go through and they were too inconsistent. So not only did it solve their email problem, but it paid them to solve it. It also helped artists who, I think a lot of people forget this, especially, especially newer artists who, who, who weren't there at the time, but it was next to impossible to contact the bloggers unless you hired a publicist to do it for you. And so now for a fraction of that cost, you could actually guarantee that instead of sending out 500 emails and getting no response, you could actually contact 10 people within your genre, hear back from all 10 of them within 48 hours and do it for $10. So it, it kind of flipped things on its, on its head uh, and, and initially, there were actually a lot of very angry publicists 
who felt like I was I was ruining or undercutting their business. And, and in a way it was. So I was I was I was cutting out a middleman and replacing myself as the other middleman, but for a fraction of the cost. Uh, because code yeah but okay like because so, so, this like this transition that happened right you know yeah. it, it parallels another bigger transition that you know the democratization of the digital is brought in music so if you look at the mid 90s it was impossible i talk about this all the time when i do talks it was impossible to release music. You had to make CDs, then you had to get it to a distributor, and they had to put it in a store. And there were lots of roadblocks. And the, blo the blogging world, all that kind of stuff, reduced those roadblocks in a way so that artists could contact people. So do-it-yourself DIY became even more accessible to a lot of people. So Publicists saying that they're that you are undercutting them is technically true, but a lot of these artists, I'm assuming, didn't have access to those publicists before anyway. Is that not correct? They could have paid them. I mean, I think I think publicists would be willing to take anyone who's going to pay. And and on on top of that, at this, at this time, everyone was a publicist. Uh, yeah. There there was this, this huge <laughs> yeah. group of of um, it was actually so we haven't touched on hype machine. But hype oh, machine I really forgot does. about Hype Machine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so for those who don't know, Hype Machine, I mentioned Elbows earlier in this. In this, Hype Machine ended up beating Elbows. And what they did was they kept track of all of the music blogs and what they were covering, but they did it in a much better way. They had a, a, a high technology website, if you will, where you could listen to the music very easily. Their charts were great. And Hype Machine became an integral part of every label's A&R meetings. So they would just go through the chart on Fridays and say, okay, like what's the top 20 on Hype Machine? We'll be right back after this break. Hi, Jen from Beta here. Beta is the platform that enables sending and receiving of digital audio in a clean, simple and secure way. Beta is also unrivaled in taking advantage of audiophiles' unique properties. That means that Beta reads and writes file metadata, it converts audio file formats, and can quickly deliver secure downloads and or great sounding streaming. Create, promote, and discover with Beta. We've been through this big transition, and now artists can use submit hub to reach all these blogs and you know you you've streamlined everything but i think that the, there's one problem that still remains and that is and i think this problem has always been there like what is what the hell is the strategy what is an artist supposed to do to get noticed even today like in the sense that what's the best because when we talked earlier in the week we talked about and you, you, I think you talked about this a lot, like an artist knowing who they are and what they want to do. And I thought that was extremely insightful. So let's talk about that because I'm assuming that's always been the case. That's not something that's new today. You need to know who you are. I suppose that's probably one of the questions that a, a publicist would ask you early on is, is where do you want your audience to come from? Where do you want to interact with your fans? Where should they be listening to your music? So for someone who is a folk artist or a singer-songwriter, 
many times that answer will be that you want to perform live, interact with artists live, and that's really where you get your reward, performing in front of people, them enjoying the music, and you getting that feedback loop of, of positive confirmation. For other artists, let's say you make lo-fi beats and you like to do it in your bedroom at 2 a.m., odds are you never actually want to play live and you probably don't want to meet your fans and you're happy to try and make <laughs> your money in streaming revenue. So, so the first question is to try and identify what you want to make of it and where you're looking for that reward. Because I think it's important to set your expectations in the right place. And, and, and if you go out there with your goal being that you're going to make money, you need to understand that the odds are you will not make money. It's just an incredibly competitive space. The payouts are small. You need to scale really well. And so I think it's important as an artist to try and think about what other aspects of reward you are looking for from your music. Perhaps you just get the satisfaction from laying down a track and making something really good and having that out there. But I think that, that what many artists would love to have is, is confirmation from listeners. There are people out there enjoying my music, interacting with it, and I want to keep making music for them. So if you can try and identify where you want those listeners to be and how you want to interact with them and how you want them to perceive you, then that sort of lays the foundation of what kind of marketing you want to do and whether digital should even be on your map. So someone who, who wants to play coffee shop live performances, getting on a bunch of Spotify playlists is not going to help you accomplish that goal specifically. It might, it might help a little bit. We can get into that a little bit, but... Um, Generally speaking, that's a great first step is, is to understand what your approach uh, is going to be. And do you like do you think that is e easier today or harder? Do you do you think because I wonder about that a lot, like have artists always not known where they fit or was it easier before when when when, when things were, were more hive mind, like you said? Yeah. I think I think um, prior to the digital age, if you wanted to get your music out there, you would have to stand on a corner and hand out CDs, or you would get involved in the live scene and start playing around. So if I think of some of the, the high school bands I really love that, that blew up and ended up making a living from it, they did it through live performances. They started out locally playing like high school battle of the bands, then they were playing churches locally, then they were playing bigger venues, then they were opening up for bigger bands, then they were playing the band's whoop tour, and it just grew and grew and grew from there. So so that sort of predates the digital age in that sense. I don't know if it, it sounds was pretty, pretty we just didn't hear about people who was trying like yeah. it sounds pretty prehistoric. Like it, like it, it's like this very physical world. Everything happens with, you know, and we've just come out of a pandemic, which was basically yeah. super digital. So I, well, it's interesting to hear it when the way you summarize it, because I remember that. Oh, well, we did this and it got it expanded like this. And the first one of these How We Listens, we had a guy named Hugh Stevens from Radio One. And we talked about this idea of community. And originally community was something physical. But like community is now something that happens online. I'll, I'll, so I'll, I'll, um, when I moved back to South Africa in 2013, things were originally quite digital at that point. But what I found interesting was that all the successful bands here were essentially knocking off the sound of bigger bands overseas. And that's because those bigger <laughs> bands weren't coming here on tour. And so they were yeah. able to play all of the shows here and sort of satisfy audience demand 
by playing songs that sound like the Arctic Monkeys or whoever was hot at the time, the Strokes, that type of stuff. So um, I think I think today the, the landscape has changed quite a lot in terms of where people consume their music and how they consume it. And, and in some ways it, it, it's, it is more difficult, but it also has never been easier to find the people who might connect with your music, especially if you're making pretty far out stuff. Okay, so we, we sort of talked about the history and the comparisons. Like if I'm an artist today and I sort of have an idea of what kind of music I make and sort of what I want to do, like I, I think I understand the live thing well like you know if i if i make if i'm in a band chances are i want to play gigs and that's a good way to gain fans and but but this whole online space in in some ways it would be nice if it was still like the blogging the way it used to be because you just knew that was what you were supposed to do but now it seems like because i we had another guy on from awol and he talked a lot about spending money on advertising and, and so like what's your take on the whole digital landscape. Like you've got some hub for doing blogs and playlists, but then there's like advertising. Like where do you, where does someone start? Do you think? <laughs> so most people start by typing how to promote your music into Google. Uh, yeah. And then they come up with a bunch of YouTube gurus, gurus because of course, you know, Google is pushing YouTube. Promoting its own product. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, it's not promoting their own product. Oh, sorry, sorry. Giving the best results, filtering result. the best results. Yeah, there you go. You got it. See, that's the antitrust stuff. Um, so, so I think that's what happens, and a lot of people land on these sort of self promo gurus on YouTube, many of whom have a lot of wisdom. Uh, at the same time, you can also fall victim to a lot of scams out there that promise success. I think for me, it's kind of like throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks you got to try a few different approaches and you never know which one's going to work perfectly. A lot of people do enjoy going that Instagram and Facebook advertising route. And, and while it's quite difficult to actually grasp and get in place and do all of that, it does mean that you, uh, you don't get rejected when you pay for Instagram ads. They're happy to take your money and the targeting works and you only pay when people click. So you are kind of, a, you're not exposing yourself to any sort of rejection, but um it's a multifaceted approach. And if ultimately you do want to perform live or you do want to get signed to a label or you do want to grow there, I think some of it is thinking about building your, your online resume, which they call an electronic press kit. But you're trying to fill that up with a little bit of proof from many different spaces. So let's say that you want to get booked for a gig and you approach a booker for a show. One of the first things they'll do if they don't know who you are is look you up on the internet. So they're going to check out your Spotify. They're not looking to see that you've got millions of listeners on Spotify, but if they see that it's completely dead, that might be a bit of a, a turnoff for them, right? So you kind of want to get a couple thousand listeners on Spotify. You also want to be able to make sure that when they do Google you, it's not just a SoundCloud, YouTube, and Spotify link coming up. There's actually blogs writing about you and giving context and saying things that are interesting. You want to make sure that when they go to your social media, there's stuff happening there. So they're looking for this this digital resume, if you will, that demonstrates that you have an audience that you can bring to their venue and that you are capable of actually executing and performing well. So the answer to your question is that it's, it's next to impossible to have success by focusing on just one of these areas. And as an artist today, you, you have to become a jack of all trades. So not only do you have to learn how to play, play instruments, record the music, mix, master, and produce it, um, 
get it on all these digital distributors, get it out on the internet, create ads around it. So you need your advertising, you need your artwork on the album. You need... So so one thing I, I like to remind artists is when, when they finally get to that end point where they release their song and tell the world about it and it flops, the silver lining here is that you've actually gained a ton of experience doing many different things that could be useful elsewhere. You know how to set up ads, you know how to do digital stuff, you know how to do all of these things that are in a way valuable and you've learned stuff along the way. So it's it's hard it's hard to say oh okay yeah i get it you know like i i understand an artist is going to be more focused on the fact that they've faced a lot of rejection and perhaps their song flopped but um yeah i think it's important as an artist to not lose track of the fact that at the end of the modern process you've had to jump through so many hoops that you come out with a, a completely new skill set and i i i totally agree you you meet so many people in the music business specifically people who work at labels and stuff who think they don't have any transferable skills, but it's actually such a jungle that, you know, that you can apply most of these skills to other industries. But I think also what's interesting to what you're saying is your song flops, but you're always about to release another record anyway. So you can learn from what you did the first time. I think, I think that's also, it's the experimenting, which I think is very difficult for people to understand that, well, you got to give it a go and then you try some stuff and you have to learn what worked and what 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 didn't work and i i think that that's what's fascinating about what you're saying it's that you've got to have a bit from many different places because i think when people read that's why we started how we listen because when you read the press a lot of these bigger companies like google says oh youtube just do everything on youtube or yeah only use facebook for ads or yeah. spotify you know for artists is the one and where you, what you're saying, I think is completely correct. You need a bit everywhere to figure out what's going to work for you. You have a guess of what might work. You're an artist. You're going to play live. That's your focus. But something might work somewhere else. And you have to be open to those kind of things. So I, so I think that insight is great. Yeah, it's, it's the wild, wild west out there. Uh, I think what's cool about artists is that they are active consumers on the internet. So artists are contributing to everything going on rather than being passive consumers. They're not just sitting there scrolling through their Instagram or watching Netflix. And so I think there's a lot to be said for that kind of behavior. Even if you do come out of it with your song not performing well, or you're not getting the, the credit or appreciation that you were hoping for, I think it's important to step back and realize that you're, you're sort of in that, in that five or 10% of the population that's actually doing stuff. And that's cool. So like, Okay, so I'm a new artist. I'm like, I want to do some stuff, some promo online. I don't have enough for a publicist. I'm going to go on some MidHub and I'm going to send my music, music to some people. Like, should I be sending them all the blogs or all the playlists? Or like, how do I even do? I don't like, that's the thing. How would I even decide what to do? Yeah, all right. Well, I'll tell you what to do. Um... Thanks. So... So, okay. So the two that I think are quite valuable here are music blogs and Spotify playlists. So we'll start with music blogs. First and foremost, they no longer bring the traffic or listenership that they used to. So music blogs okay. are not a good way to generate new fans. What you're doing with music blogs is you're generating content around your music. So the, the ideal situation is you send your music to a blog, they like it, and they write a blog post about it. It includes a little bit about you, a little bit about your song, a little bit about your album. Now you've got something 
that shows up in Google when people search for you and it doesn't disappear. It's evergreen, if you will. As long as that blog is online, your post is gonna show up in those search results. You also have something that's better to share with your fan base than a playlist. So I'll just compare, like you share a blog post, it's like, cool, here's a blog post about me, about my story and about my song. Share a playlist, you'll be like, okay, cool. Everyone, I got added to this playlist. I'm at number 17. Oh, wait, no, sorry, they've moved me to number 23. Ah, oh, no, wait, never mind. They took me off. It's 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 not good shareable content and it disappears after a while. So blogs are good for Google SEO. They're good for sharing with your fans and they're good for quotes that you can then put in your press kit or your pitch or whatever. So it's it's really an important part of your electronic press kit and your, as I say, your digital resume. Social here. proof. That's the role that it's, yeah. Social yeah, proof. Somebody else is saying that you're great, not just yourself. <laughs> exactly. So if you if you then want to go to that booking agent and play this gig at a venue, you can actually show them the quotes from Indie Shuffle or show them the quotes from these other blogs. And ideally, you want to get three or four. If you've ever walked around London, you're probably going to see a ton of billboards under bridges everywhere for music. And on a lot of those billboards in London, you'll see three or four quotes from blogs about how awesome the album is. And so that's really the value that publicists, that's like why that's why they're still using blogs for this. And I suppose a similar analogy here would be in, in the music industry, right? I mean, sorry, the, the book literary industry. If you ever open up a book, you're gonna see on there like quotes from five other authors saying how awesome this book is, or you know, I've never read anything more amazing in my life. So that's the same type of thing that you're looking for with blog posts today you're not looking for listenership. It just is not going to convert that well. There are a few blogs that can. So Indie Shuffle has always been one of the largest music blogs. We used to be able to get you 15,000 listens within the first week. And I think today we're down to about a thousand. So that's that's the best of the best. I think most music blogs are going to follow through with 10, 20 listeners and whether they'll convert to fans, who knows? But that's not the point of the music blogs. So that that sort of covers that base. Hi, Jen from Beta here. I want you to know that every podcast features a different guest. They each offer up a unique perspective from deep within the music ecosystem. Like Mark's talk with Miller Williams, the senior VP of creative at Cobalt Music Publishing. Miller has worked in the world of publishing and record labels for many years. Miller offers some advice on how to approach career in music and getting music placed in TV, film, and ads. Go listen to that episode and then go write great songs. I don't think people understand the relationship between, say, traditionally between press and radio, that you needed press to get on the radio and then you needed radio to push things forward, to go back to press, to get better press. But what about playlists then? What do they do? Right. So playlists are an interesting one uh, and Spotify pushes their editorial side hard. So there are three types of playlists on Spotify. There are editorial playlists. These are managed by Spotify. Historically, they used to actually be managed by a person. But my understanding is that today it's more of an algorithmic driven selection. So the algorithm suggests and then at the end, the person goes, OK, yeah, that works. That doesn't work. This one does work. So it's less about them going out to seek music and more about Spotify's algorithm feeding them suggestions and then them deciding what fits. So those are editorial playlists. You then have independent playlists. These are created by 
Joe Schmo, you, you, me, everyone else you know, and also by music blogs and people with brands. So independent playlists originally was something that Spotify promoted, but then they started to grow their editorial side and they began to bury the independent playlists more and more. So for example, Indie Shuffle had a Spotify playlist. Then Spotify noticed people were looking for Indie Shuffle on Spotify. So what they did, they created their own playlist called Indie Shuffle so that it could show up in search results ahead of ours. And they've done that across the board. Anytime they notice a search term that's doing well, they'll yeah. make sure that they create their own playlist to go ahead of it. So being an independent playlist early on, you could actually grow quite a following. And Spotify used to suggest playlists on their, on their homepage or in the app. They don't do that anymore. They only push their own playlists. And that's because they've got tens of thousands of them. So independent playlisters today still exist, but many of them have to grow their audience either by focusing on really niche genres that Spotify hasn't yet jumped on, really niche search terms that Spotify hasn't jumped on. So this is actually, we find a lot of, for example, Turkish playlisters do really well really? by using the Turkish words for the genres because Spotify hasn't jumped on that necessarily. So anyone who's using Spotify in Turkey goes to search for, you know, indie rock, but in Turkish and the independent playlists show up at the top of the results. And then um, you have algorithmic playlists. So there are two pretty famous ones here. There's the, um, oh, is it just the Discover Weekly? Actually, that's the one, that's the one to think about. So that's the prime example here. Discover Weekly is a playlist that Spotify updates every Monday, I think, and it's based on your yeah. listener behavior. And they'll suggest new tracks by artists that they think you'll like. So it's all driven by algorithm. It's looking at your listener behavior. And they have a ton of different playlists in different spaces for this. But another one that comes up a lot is let's say you are listening to an album and the album finishes. Spotify starts automatically lining up music after that. And it's typically a mix of music by that artist and artists who sound like that artist. So those are the algorithmic playlists. You got editorial, independent, and algorithmic. Spotify will tell you that getting on the editorial is possible and all you have to do is follow their steps. Good luck. It's one of those cases where they're actually looking for some sort of proof that you have had success before. So my understanding is that it's very rare for an artist who's just getting started to get added to an editorial playlist because there's no real data behind their music to demonstrate that it's going to be well-received. So they want to see that people have been enjoying this song, adding it to their own playlist, listening the whole through, way through, putting it on repeat. Those are the types of signals they're looking for. So you can go through Spotify's official editorial process, but unless you have some sort of traction from your previous releases, it's not going to do a whole lot for you. So then the question is, how do you get traction on your releases if you're new on Spotify? And there are two ways of doing that. One is Instagram advertising or Facebook advertising, primarily people do it in the context of Instagram, but this is where you use Facebook's ad platform to target people who might like your style of music. You can do that based on similar artists or genres or age or location, whatever, and you're trying to drive them towards your Spotify. So it's quite a, an expensive way of doing it, but it is hyper-targeted and you don't get rejected. So you might pay 30 cents per listener type of thing, but they're definitely coming through. The other thing you can do is try and pitch your music to independent playlisters. And these are sort of like modern blogs, if you will. They have come along and uh, shifted the technology base. Instead of running their own blogs, they're now running playlists. 
but they are curating a collection of songs, ideally within a specific genre. And so your goal as an artist is to try and get them to share your music. So that is one of the things that Submit Hub solves. We allow you to contact these guys up front uh, and we provide a, a ton of information about each of those playlisters so that you can make informed decisions about who to send to. And it hasn't always been that way. We've, we've learned the hard way. When we first rolled out the Spotify stuff, it was the, the wild, wild west. And we were kind of the first ones doing it. There were a couple other companies doing it as well. But um, we used to just show you how many followers a playlist had, which was a terribly misleading metric. So what you'll find on Submit Hub today is that we can actually tell you how many listeners each playlist has. And, and this is data that we've got, but no one else has. Spotify doesn't tell you that. Like what's yeah, the difference well, between followers and listeners? Listeners, if you open up anyone's artist profile on Spotify, the way it shows is here's an image, the artist name, and right under that, it shows you how many monthly listeners they have. That is quite a fickle number. Once you get pulled out of these playlists, you actually lose that traction. Followers is maybe a more important metric because those are permanent and they stick around. But Spotify seems to kind of have gotten rid of that metric. In fact, I'm looking literally right now at an artist's profile and I all I see is their monthly listeners number. They are no longer showing how many followers they have. They seem to have hidden it it's no longer visible. In the context of artist profiles and what you're trying to grow there for your digital things, Spotify seems to be putting all their weight behind monthly listeners. And I think that's because they want you to keep coming back to Spotify and making sure that you are investing everything in it. Can, uh, can, I, just, yeah. can I just ask one th thing about like, because I use Spotify, right? But there are so many other platforms. Do, do you need to target everyone individually or... Like, what? why do you always mention Spotify? Is that just you got to pick one to focus on? Or like on SubmitHub, do all the people who do playlists, do they have the same playlist on Apple Music as well? Or can you talk a bit about that? Yeah. So the difference with those other streaming services is that they don't have any sort of independent community around it. Okay. There's no following. There's no how many followers are on a playlist, how many listeners is of a playlist. Like that, that, that whole fostering of community is not there. And Spotify's done a really good job bringing that in. So in many ways, Spotify is the be all and end all here. And, and, and many of those other platforms are just looking for trends from Spotify. So it gets amplified. Um, let's say that you are having some success on Spotify. That tends to amplify on Apple Music, et cetera, and, and spill over there. So by pushing everything on Spotify, you actually have control over it. Whereas with Apple Music, they have editorial playlists, but they don't have a way of pitching to them unless you are one of the record labels or you've got some really good contacts. So they intentionally operate within this black box, whereas Spotify's independent playlisters allow you to influence the way that your song is presented or can be manipulated. I mean, like you can you can manipulate the algorithm. So we can get into that a little bit, but um, Spotify is the only one that allows you to transparently do that. You can actually see the results and see what's going on. Um, I couldn't, by the way, Slater, I, I was checking exactly what you're saying and I don't even see the followers. Oh yeah, I do. All right, you have to, so they've, they've buried followers. It's no longer an important metric for artists. They are now putting all the emphasis on monthly listeners because they want you to stay active. Um, on playlists, the downside here is that they don't actually tell you how many listeners a playlist has. They just show you how many followers it has. 
And there's no way to access that data from Spotify themselves unless you are an artist who has been added to that playlist yourself. Then you can go into your, your Spotify for Artists dashboard and you can see exactly how many listeners you got from each playlist you were added to. So the numbers you see on SubmitHub are powered by artists who've been shared by those playlists. We actually reach out and we offer a little bit of money in exchange for that data. So we say, uh -huh. hey, we see you were shared three weeks ago by so-and-so. Could you tell us how many listeners you got? If you do, we'll give you some money. And so we've been doing that now. I think we've got um, around 10 million data points or something around how many listeners there are on Spotify. We've also partnered up with one of the major labels. They've given us access to a lot of their data. And one of the biggest distributors has also given us access. So on SubmitHub, in the early days, we made the mistake of putting emphasis on followers. And we very quickly learned that that's a misleading metric. Someone with 100,000 followers might only have 10 listeners. And so today you can make your decisions about who you're sending to with that context. But more importantly, what we found over the last couple of years and, and what I've been pushing really hard for the last six months is the, the nicheness or genre fit of those playlists. So if you are an artist trying to push your music on Spotify and you want to trigger Spotify's algorithm so that it starts amplifying your song and showing it to more people and eventually bubbles up into the editorial lists, first you have to teach Spotify where your song belongs. And one of the worst things you can do is run along to one of these organic listener websites where you pay $5 and they'll get you a thousand listeners because they're going to put you in a fake playlist with a bunch of fake listeners and those listeners are going to be completely untargeted. So your song will be, let's say you make techno music, the next song will be rap, then acoustic folk, then this. And what you're doing is you're sort of confusing Spotify's algorithm and they don't actually know where you belong or which artists they should associate you with. And that really messes up the algorithm. It means that if they attempt to show you in a uh, Discover Weekly type of playlist, they're going to be targeting completely the wrong people. So if you make techno music, you want to make sure that you are getting added to playlists that feature techno and primarily techno, if not exclusively techno, so that you can be associated with those listeners who like techno. And Spotify says, well, you know, 90% of your listeners seem to like techno. So we're going to recommend you alongside other techno artists. And that's so that that's one of the ways you can leverage independent playlisters to trigger that algorithm. And you can do the same thing with with Instagram ads. You could target techno fans and then Spotify will see that a bunch of techno fans are listening to you and they'll get a better idea of where you belong. So those two approaches, um, a lot of these gurus out there will recommend, you know, like take five hundred dollars of your budget, put it into ads and then take fifty dollars and put it into Submit Hub. Um, with the idea being that you are only going to focus on the playlists that are hyper-targeted within those genres. And I think this also goes back to the idea that you need to know who you are and what you want to do, because you need, you need to understand your music, not just in, in the music you make, but in the wider context, which I think mm -hmm. is, is basically the whole point. So, okay. So I've, I get, I used to mid hub or, you know, whatever I need to do to get a little press, I get a little action. I, I'm looking at playlists, but, you know, like, can we just talk like about the pitfalls of playlists? Isn't there people talk about, I don't really know enough about this, like where you can game the system. Like are, are, are there platforms that say they can guarantee um, streams yeah, or guarantee many. ads? Or like, and, and I don't know the differences. So can you, 
because it's clear that we, you need to do this kind of stuff. The playlist stuff is important on the journey to getting a series of different levels of support. But talk, can you talk about some of the pitfalls? Yeah, so there are three types of Spotify promotion platforms you'll find. The first ones are like Submit Hub. The idea here is that you are pitching your music to playlisters with no guarantee of inclusion. And any sort of financial transaction has nothing to do with whether the song is shared or not. You're paying for their time spent consuming your submission, giving it the time of day and responding to it in a timely manner. The second time are these websites that you can go to where they basically say, hey, buy 1,000 listeners for $5, 10,000 listeners for $7, whatever. And usually the red flag is they'll say everything's organic. Uh, and, and so that's absolutely <laughs> a, a, the wrong way to go about it. Um, and then the, um, wow, gosh, what is the third type? I was thinking of Tone Den, actually. So there are there are a couple services out there. Tone Den and Hype Edit, I think, are the ones. And they'll help you run your ads. So those Instagram ads can be expensive and also confusing to set up. So they'll get rid of the confusion and make it even more expensive for you. But at least the targeting is really good and it's quite easy. So I, I won't lie, Submit Hub is it's difficult and it's based on subjective opinion. And a lot of the playlisters are quite picky. So the average approval rate is about 20%, which means if you submit to five curators, you're going to maybe get one of them to share you and the other four are going to say no. On Tone Den, no one's going to say no. You're going to you're going to pay 40 or 50 cents per click, but you're actually going to click and get clicks. And most of those people end up listening to your song. So assuming they're targeted well, you're also training the algorithm that way. So there are a lot of artists out there who prefer the advertising, not because it's cheaper, but because they don't get rejected. Uh, and that's, you know, it's hard to control for that. And, and I don't have the perfect solution, right? Unfortunately, with, with 100,000 new songs uploaded to Spotify every day, not everyone can get what they're looking for in this sense. But um, yeah, the, the, the bottom line here is that Spotify's terms say that you are not allowed to pay to influence the content of a playlist. And this is basically equivalent to payola from the radio days where people would pay money to get on the radio. Like here's $3,000. Can you play my song three times this week? Uh, eventually that shifted to here's a vacation to Hawaii has nothing to do with this song being played, but Spotify's rules are pretty strong around this. They they don't enforce it too much. And unfortunately, when they do enforce it, they seem to punish the artists more than the fake playlisters. So as an Yeah, I artist, thought that was interesting. Explain that a bit more. The punishing the artists. Yeah. So there've there've been a these networks that do the fake listeners and fake followers are usually pretty easy to spot. Um, anytime you encounter a Spotify playlist or profile that has more than one playlist with 20,000 followers. And like, if you just see five playlists and they all have 30,000 followers and they all sort of like fresh finds, fresh rap, fresh indie, fresh, this fresh, like huge red flag, because that's just not organic. Even if they're running Instagram ads to promote their stuff, you usually see a lot of variety in, in what playlisters do. And, and playlisters also use this advertising approach, by the way, to keep their playlists engaged and, that's a whole different thing. But these these fake playlists are really easy to spot, but Spotify doesn't really seem to take them down. And the second they get taken down, they pop right back up. And these networks are everywhere. And, and then what will happen is that every six months or so, Spotify will do this big purge where they will essentially punish any artist who received fake plays. 
and there's no opportunity to defend yourself or do anything. Uh, I remember the, the last big one was actually quite a while ago. It was in, in early 2021. I think they just deactivated about 150,000 artists. Boom. That was it. Wow. Sorry, you and guys, you- both fake list- listeners, you're done. And the playlists all get to stay up and, and keep selling their shady services. But but then the yeah. artist, it means that they, like, are they deplatformed, basically? I, if I'm not mistaken, it's that song that gets deplatformed. But at that okay. point, good luck getting into the editorial stuff. You, you probably have some sort of tarnished look on your profile. There are a lot of artists who still fake it, right? Like, let's say you do want to blow up in your hometown and play live performances. Go fake your stats. I, people do that. I, I remember a Reddit post from about two years ago where some guy claimed to be chance the rapper's early manager and he basically said yeah we we bought our way in early on we were like just paying fake likes fake players fake everything just to jack everything up as much as they could so that people started buzzing about it and and so people do it it's not the end of the world if you get your song taken down from spotify but it can kind of suck and I think a lot of artists go into it naively. They don't understand that they're being taken advantage. These, these websites look nice. They look pretty. They promise it's all natural and all organic. And they don't use bots. If you see anyone say, we don't use bots, it means they use bots. <laughs> like, <laughs> Is there anything else artists can be doing? It, you'd literally just have to start with Spotify. There's no... Like it's the easiest I, one, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. so that's why you recommend it. It's the the biggest bang for your buck. It's the so most it's accessible. Good. It's the easiest one to actually get some sort of traction on. Spotify gives you some statistics. You get to see how many monthly listeners you have. The Spotify for Artists dashboard is great. Really drills down into the demographics, the age groups, the locations, how many listeners you're getting from here, from there. So, so they give you all of this stuff that you can see, and none of the other platforms really give this to you. And what that means is that 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 they've well they've got this whole community where people will will sort of help grow your music there so yeah that that is um but that that is probably the best way we we explored about six months ago whether we should start a distribution side to submit hub we we've had a lot of the distributors come and try to partner with us because we have so many independent artists on the platform uh we're approaching a million users now and so we're a really good sales funnel for them, if you will, in terms of awareness and, hey, for your next release, use this distributor. And so we kind of thought, okay, well, why, why aren't we doing this? Um, and we we pretty quickly answered the question. It's way too competitive. Uh, and, and it's it's also a lot of work. Um, like most of their employees at these companies are customer support because it's just, whoo. Anyway, distribution yeah. is not one I'm going to get into. It, it is commoditized. You do <laughs> it it yeah. is definitely commoditized. It's there's you know it's crazy how many of them are there. But but again, it's like it's conversations like this. People need the knowledge. It's easy to get the music out there, and that's a very good thing. But the problem is, it's like okay, now that it's one of those hundred thousand tracks, it's what are you going to do? And that's yeah. where all the support comes in. Like you're saying, all the support comes in. It's like you need the strategies and you need the feedback and you need the context to build things up. I can I can just touch on one okay. other thing, but um, sure. influencer marketing. Oh, uh, okay, um, go for it. Well, well, I mean, we've mentioned this oversaturation, and I alluded to TikTok as well. But on on Submit Hub, you can pitch your songs to influencers, and on that side, we're actually doing straight up payola. So you you basically pay ten dollars or twenty dollars for someone to cover your content, and if they don't, you get your your money back. So 
I just, this is more of a PSA, if you will. I think a lot of new artists out there have heard buzz about TikTok and think that maybe it's a good and easy way to blow up. And so they try it. And I guess my PSA here is that it's not. TikTok is really difficult to blow up on. And, and I would only use TikTok as an artist for two reasons. Uh, the first one is if you are trying to build up content around your song. So we see a lot of major labels do this. They're going to go and spend a big budget on TikTok influencer stuff. And they want to make sure that when someone opens up that song in the TikTok feed, there's a bunch of videos associated with it. So this is, in a sense, their part of their digital resume to show that the song was a success and didn't flop. And, and they can probably also turn around and show this to their clients who are the artists and be like, look at all the work we've done for you. But um, what they're essentially just doing is filling up their feed. And it's not necessarily going to help them go viral in any way because buying virality is next to impossible. The second thing you can do with influencer content is essentially pay for people to make many music videos for you. So at the end of the day, oh, you are yeah. paying someone to create content in small 10 or 15 second chunks. And if you give them a prompt, which you can do on Submit Hub, like wear a funny red hat and jump up on one leg, whatever that cohesive thing is, it's similar to a blog post in its quality for sharing with your existing fan base. So you can then, um, you can, you can, share that content that's been created with your fans and say like, you know, here's another TikTok video for you to go check out. Ultimately, I wouldn't work on these platforms as an artist unless I myself am keen to be on that platform. So, so this is, you know, a good starting point in this question of, of where do you want to be and where do you want your fans to consume your music? I think it's, it's to ask where, where are you now and what do you understand? So jumping into TikTok if you don't have a TikTok yourself and you don't make TikTok videos and you're not spending your day on there, kind of pointless. You're not going to get the rewards back from it. That stuff's happening in the background and you don't really know what's there. So anyway, that's my PSA on influencer did you, marketing. Did you have a second PSA? No, that's the one. Okay. So then the other last PSA <laughs> is that beta links are coming. Oh, yeah. So mid-hub. So if everybody knows Submit Hub, you can post different types of links in, and Beta is going to be one of those. Um, so that everybody who's on this call will know about that when we uh, announce that. So that's coming. So that was sort of the last piece of info, I think, right? Yeah, I do see a question. Um, oh, and go also for Emma, it. Emma's pointed out that uh, you can try and, and buy a, a pint for the Spotify editorial team if you know where to find them. So... <laughs> That's pretty cool. Um, and then uh, Chizzy Bamisi has asked about timing in terms of when you should promote your release. Oh, timelines. Yeah. So, so there's a lot of stuff that you have to do when you are releasing your song. But assuming that you've got all of your assets in place and you've lined up your distributor and everything's ready, what happens on Submit Hub is that you can pitch well in advance without any worry. What happens is that you, you add your release date. And you can send it off to curators. And then if they do like your song and they want to share it, it all just sort of stays in a pending queue until it's time to be shared um, on the release day. And what, and what we've actually got on Submit Hub is that most of the playlisters have given us permission to automatically share to their playlist. And so on release day, assuming we have your link, which we, we tend to be able to find automatically on the internet, I've got some code on release day, I check for your Spotify link, I get it, 
tell the curators it's ready, and then the code just automatically shares it. So what that means is that doing it in advance, whether it's one week, two weeks, or three weeks, is actually pretty advantageous because you will ensure that on release day, you get that momentum going pretty straight away. So release day hits, boom, 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 it gets shared. With music blogs, we'll hold it in the pending queue until release date, but then you, those are usually trickle in over, over a week or two after release date. Those, those guys still have to sit down, write about it, publish it. There's a bit more work that goes into that. But you still want a bit of that, right? You want stuff on release date, then you want stuff over time. Do you not? Like you want to, again, yeah, like yeah, you were yeah. saying, you want a balance of. Yeah, look, Spotify says uh, that the the traction for your song, really all that matters is the first 28 days. After that, your song is almost dead in the water. I've heard of songs being brought back to life, but essentially what they're looking at is the performance in the first 28 days because they are going to put in their algorithmic playlist new releases primarily. And so you want to make sure that yours still qualifies as new and so it gets that traction up front. So so it is in that sense, it's it's I think it's a lot better to push it early on. You can bring a song back to life and you can get some traction on it and you can still always teach at any point you want. You can teach Spotify's algorithm where you belong because that's going to be important for your next release. When you release that, Spotify says, well, we already know you sound like Bonobo. We already know you sound like the Beatles. So let's start showing you to fans of that. So, so that can happen later on. There's really no problem with that. Can you speak more about the fads of speeding up or slowing down your music? Have you heard about this? I haven't heard of it. Yeah, I, I can't speak too much about it. It is a TikTok thing. I, and I'm surprised, actually. We've got uh, mostly Universal Music Group is pouring tons of money into this on Submit Hub. All, they're, they're like speeding up all the songs in their catalog, be it the Rolling Stones or, oh man, it's just everyone. Sam Smith was one they were doing last week. And they're putting like tens of thousands of dollars behind this. I think it might just be TikTok is very fast. So let's just play the songs quicker. <laughs> like, I don't know. So, but this is the thing that people, that they're releasing so different versions of old songs. Yeah, it's, it's generally, from what I've seen, older songs and the major labels, to my surprise, are speeding up famous songs. And and I suppose what they're they're hoping for is that Fleetwood Mac moment where a song goes viral on TikTok and blows up on all the streaming platforms because of it. So I think it's a way possibly to re-engage that younger audience with their back catalog and, and continue to push it. Wow, I had no idea. Yeah. But then what happens when, when someone goes to listen to the track and it's all slow? <laughs> the original track. It's like, what? It's all slow. This is a ripoff. Here's yeah, the well, then what you start one. to see... There's a bunch of playlisters on Spotify who start titling their playlist like Rolling Stones Sped Up. And that's the name of their playlist. And they end up getting a lot of listeners on it. It's, it's a pretty bad practice that we don't condone. But it's interesting the way that that spills out in, into different ways. God, it's, it's moving soon. Everything's going to be less than a second long. Like they'll have condensed, Every, everything will be so condensed that your, your career will be over in an hour. Yes and no, right? <laughs> I'm, being it's, it's, I'm being sarcastic. Yeah, no, but, but, but what you're saying there has been something that people have been worried about. But I, I think today you have, uh, music is so accessible that you can find the right people for the right thing. And, and one of the most popular genres on Submit Hub is, is neoclassical and sort of epic ambient type of music that does really well there. And that stuff's all pretty slow and easygoing. So, yeah. That's the biggest advantage of the way it is now is that 
you, everybody can find their niche, irrespective of how hard it is to get noticed. You can reach the people who like what you do a lot easier than before. So the world is a better place, I'd say, definitely. All right, well, thanks so much. It was brilliant to talk to you. Thanks for all the insight. And we'll talk to you soon, everyone. Pleasure. I'm going to wave everybody goodbye. Have a nice evening. Thank you. Merci, monsieur. Bye-bye. Au revoir. Au revoir. Hey, it's Mark again. Thanks for listening. I want to thank our special guest, Jason Grishoff, for chatting with me. I also want to thank Jamie Ford from Beta, who makes sure every conversation goes off without a hitch, and our podcast producer and editor, Colin McKenzie. Our music is by Finn Productions and Oliver Liu. The How We Listen Live In Conversation podcasts are brought to you by Beta.com. Beta enables sending and receiving of digital audio in a clean, simple, and secure way, built for everyone working with music today. The live online series takes place on the last Tuesday of every month, free to sign up and attend. Come and join the conversation. Go to beta.com for more information. Thanks for listening and get in touch with any questions. <laughs>